It's a great pleasure to welcome you to this Mitchell Institute conversation, part of a podcast series created at the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice here at Queen's University, Belfast. I'm Richard English, Director of the Institute, and I'm delighted to be joined for today's podcast by my colleague, Dr. Heather Johnson, Senior Lecturer in the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics here at Queen's University, Belfast, and a Fellow of the Mitchell Institute. Dr. Johnson's expertise is wide-ranging and covers migration and refugees, citizenship and issues of non-citizenship, and critical security studies, especially as it relates to borders. Heather, it's great to have you for the podcast today. I wonder if we could start by talking about your excellent book, Borders, Asylum and Global Non-Citizenship, which is the first thing I read by you. Could you say (laughs) something about the book, its argument, its material, the kind of things you wanted to get across through that research? Yeah, sure. It feels like 100 years ago now, um, the book. And it's it's interesting the way that it still informs my work, both in the sense of the things I wish I had done differently uh, and the lessons learned, and also in the ways that um, I'm sort of st- still thinking about a lot, of, a lot of the key issues. So the book is... Uh, an investigation of the global asylum system, really. And it's an attempt to take a look at really highly local, specific sites. So refugee camps, uh, detention centers, and also self-organized kind of encampments or launching places for cross-border irregular migration around the world. And to both take seriously how they are very highly contextualized and very, very local, and that the lives that are lived there are rich and meaningful and very much influential in terms of the local politics, while also reflecting on the ways in which they reflect global kind of systems and strategies and practices, and whether we can identify trends and uh, important ideas, I suppose, that across all of these cases from Tanzania, Spain, Morocco, Australia, across across the globe, and the ways that we can think about the international system and the way that people live it and experience it. One of the things that struck me about the book and about your work is the way in which that very particularizing interrogation of experience relates to really grand global issues. Mm -hmm. And you do work through the lens of critical security studies, which obviously addresses these global Mm -hmm. systemic questions. Could you say something, I mean, as you say, that, that book was um, a few years ago now. Can you say something about the state of the art, the state of the field now in terms of challenges, achievements, where we are in terms of critical security studies, how successful that way of viewing scholarship and interventions has been in terms of challenging some orthodoxies? Yeah, absolutely. I think that in lots of ways, um, for me at least, that that book, which is my PhD research actually, uh, was about trying to figure out the ways in which stories and narratives can be told within what is otherwise or can be quite a rigid frame of security studies and quite a top-down frame um, that tends to sort of homogenize and flatten and erase individual lives. Um, And there was also questions around methodology that are deeply imbued in the work that I was doing and that continues today um, in terms of how to think about the ways in which we engage with people whose voices aren't usually heard at the global level, right? Who, uh, when we think about security studies as like a big state concern, that who doesn't get heard there? And yet, who are the people who are actually experiencing it at the level of the minutia? And I think that that, at the time, 
thinking about refugee stories and refugee narratives was a bit, um, wasn't unusual in international relations, but it was less often found in international relations and certainly in security and critical security studies. And I was part of a really kind of burgeoning movement at the time that has really flourished since then. And so we're seeing a lot of work that is trying to sort of marry the, the local to the global and to take the local seriously as a global site. It happens particularly within international political sociology, um, there's a journal now that kind of embraces that work. And particularly with sort of new and emerging and young scholars, especially scholars from the global south, they're taking that very, um, very much forward. And I think actually one of the things that's emerged in that is that as that work has become far more common, as it's no longer you know, a radical thing to say, we need to listen to stories, we need to listen to voices. Uh, now, I think, especially from the perspective of a Western scholar, um, as a white scholar, we need to sort of start to grapple with some of the ethics around it um, and how we do research and how we have these conversations and how we imagine this kind of work. And so for me, that's where the field is going in really exciting ways. And so while we're taking stories more seriously now, now we need to take more seriously the, what we do with those stories once we've got them. And is Belfast a good location? Thinking about the geographies of knowledge that you've been describing, uh-huh. t- tell me about Belfast as a place to do that kind of work. <laughs> it's an interesting one because it's sort of... I didn't know much about Belfast until I moved here uh, because it's not part, it's not one of the sites that I sort of studied per se. But I think that um, there's a couple of things. One, there is actually a group of people here who really take these kinds of questions very, very seriously, both at the university in places like the Institute, but as well as in the, the, the School of Politics and Anthropology. And the way that we all intermix and the interdisciplinary nature of the conversations that are happening within the university are really important and quite unique to Belfast. And I think in lots of ways that's actually informed by the way that the university is situated within the city and within uh, Northern Ireland itself. Because of the demand for conversation, there's quite an... Uh, uh, a significant impulse towards having cross-boundary conversations, cross-border conversations, to take difference really seriously and to really um, engage with the politics of listening. Maybe not at the highest levels of, <laughs> of our political system, but certainly within the community, the way that the arts community is hugely important and what happens here. And all of that infiltrates in terms of research, in terms of the way that I think about my work, uh, the way that I think all, all of my colleagues would think about the work, and I think the way that we work together is is very much influenced by that kind of attention to not just interdisciplinary work but multi-sector work by reaching out you know thinking way beyond academia uh and and thinking about the community and there's something about belfast that that does that actually yeah thanks very much i mean that brings me to another question i wanted to ask you which is you know, way beyond academia if we're looking at questions around asylum seekers around migration around refugees At the time of our conversation now, this is a very pressing issue in terms of UK government policy Mm -hmm. with the current Conservative government Mm -hmm. having introduced a contentious approach to dealing Mm -hmm. with with migration or with people who are seeking asylum in the UK. Given your expertise, Heather, as a scholar who studied this, could you comment about the current state of play in regard to that, Mm -hmm. not just that policy, but around that policy as it relates to the UK and how it thinks about its politics and its identity? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, contentious is a very gentle way (laughs) of putting the current Home Office policy. I think appalling would be um, one of my words for it. Uh, It's alarming in lots of different ways. 
I think at the moment it's being treated. So, of course, we're speaking in particular about the plan to have asylum seekers be uh, removed to Rwanda for effectively offshore processing, but also offshore asylum. Uh, And that is is scary on so many different levels. It's not actually new, though. So we've been treating it and talking about it as though it was new. And I think it's because it's the first time that we've had a concrete policy that's actually, that we've had a a plane on the tarmac that was explicitly contracted for this reason. Um, That was fortunately stopped last night. And we'll see what happens in the the coming weeks around the the legal challenges. Uh, But the UK has been... Um, in our previous iteration, <laughs> when we were still part of the EU, uh, has been pushing for some form of offshoring, which means processing of asylum claims outside of the border um, for years um, through the e- for the through the auspices of the UN or the the EU, not the UN. And it's a model that has existed in Australia um, for a very, very long time. It's premised on a notion of deterrence. It's sold to the public as being tough on crime, as being in the asylum seeker's own interest because it stops people smugglers and it breaks the, the smuggling model. And all of these sort of taglines that are being borrowed from Australia, where they've been used since the early 2000s, if not the 1990s, they're the, thing, they're the same uh, messages and taglines that under underscore things like detention um, and other kinds of punitive policies. And they're being dragged into the contemporary politics. And when you add into that the degree to which a lot of the Brexit debate and discourse has been around questions of sovereign borders, around anti-immigration, not just immigration, but anti-immigration and stopping people from taking advantage and all of these, these myths that have really been propagated over the last five to six years. And it's it's a toxic mix. And what we have as a result is a policy premised on deterrence, despite the overwhelming international evidence, particularly from Australia, that deterrence does not work. It is a, it's a falsehood to think about asylum in terms of deterrence, because you're talking about people who are fleeing for their lives and don't have choice, right? So what does deterrence mean? Um, it's ignoring the fact that people smuggling and the degree to is different from people trafficking, which is not something the public is always fully exposed to, that people smuggling is at least uh, in a significant part a result of border closures and the lack of legal and safe routes, not because we have too many and people are choosing not to use them. It's because they don't exist. And so the only way to move, the only way to get yourself and your family safe is to take it is to use these sort of more nefarious organizations is ignoring that uh, and it's also organi- frankly or uh, completely ignoring the legal obligations the international legal obligations that the UK has under not just European law to the degree that we're still a party to those to those provisions right it was the court of human rights that stopped the plane effectively last night um, but also the the UN the international law around asylum and for refugees the convention for the status of refugees where um, you cannot uh, you cannot discriminate on an asylum claim on the basis of arrival. It is not allowed. You have to take it on its merit, not on the, the way that somebody moved. And with this Rwanda plan in particular, there is no legal mechanism for somebody, once they've arrived in Rwanda, to appeal, to come back, to challenge it in any kind of way. And it's the whole thing is just so alarming on so many <laughs> So many different levels that it just sort of, I avoid the news sometimes <laughs> just because it's it's so much to kind of cope with. Yeah. But the fact that it is so much in the news and it's mm-hmm. clearly something which has such real 
experience consequences for people reinforces how important your area of research is Heather can you tell, tell us something so people can hear about your current and future research what's the next stage of work that you're doing yeah that's interesting I think um, in a lot of ways the work that I'm doing at the moment is trying to grapple quite seriously with that issue of ethics that I was raising that I raised earlier about when we talk about uh, listening to refugee and asylum seeker stories to migrant stories when we talk about engaging with them as participants on our research what does that actually mean from an ethical perspective when they are coping and dealing with and facing incredibly pressing very, very real challenges, as the recent laws in the UK have ample evidence of, um, that they have gone through very difficult periods, deeply traumatic periods, that if we're going to ask of them to share with us what obligations are, what, what um, two-way obligation is there, I don't think it's okay for us to just take that story and then write it down and then move on. So it's an ongoing question of what it means to have an ongoing collaboration, uh, what it means to have an ongoing conversation, to let um, them not be just quote unquote participants in the methodology lingo, right? But instead co-authors, leaders, um, and for me to follow instead of come up with the idea myself and, and to some degree and figure out how I can give to them as opposed to effectively using them as the way it sometimes feels. And I, that really worries me. So there's that piece of the whole thing. And I think in light of what they're facing, that's significant. But the other piece of the work that I'm doing, um, in some ways, it actually has meant that I've pivoted a bit more strongly towards policy, which anybody who knew me 10 years ago would be very surprised by. <laughs> um, and to think about the ways in which policy has a sort of a deeper history. So I'm working on a monograph at the moment called Rescue uh, that is about, it starts from the boat migrations that we've seen over the last number of years in the Mediterranean, but looks at the much longer history of maritime migration for the purposes of asylum and the ways in which states have re responded to those through policies and the way that those policies have changed over time. What rescue actually means in law and in regulation, but also in our sort of common parlance and how those two things marry or don't uh, and how people um, who are in those boats um, what it means for them and how they've experienced the, those consequences of those reactions. And that long-termism, Heather, will be such an important counterweight to the very presentist, amnesiac way of looking at things in the media and in policy at the moment, presumably. I, mean, I think that gives the context to it, but also some of the evidence which would allow for more informed ways of, assume, of assessing current policy proposals. I would hope so. <laughs> I would absolutely hope so. I don't unfortunately have a lot of faith in our current uh, political masters um, to, to think in these kinds of ways. And it's really unfortunate. Um, there, Like I said, there is ample evidence around the current policy of how, of how what we're doing at the moment doesn't work. Like even according to the the parameters and the goals that they've set within themselves, right? Even according to the policy itself, putting aside, if you if we can, the human rights concerns and the the moral and ethical questions, even on its own terms, these policies don't work. Australia has had this kind of policy for decades, and it is not. It, it's insufficient. It doesn't solve the quote-unquote problem. Uh, in fact, it just creates more problems and more issues, more challenges within the society. And so it would be lovely if we could think long-term, not only sort of thinking far forward, not in terms of just the electoral cycle uh, and the short-term kind of knee-jerk policy responses that are going to get a populist policy through and a populist government re-elected or in, you know, in the headlines for the reasons it wants to be and not for the reasons it doesn't want to be. Um, but also if we could think long term, 
back and actually learn lessons from what has been done before. Um, and the incredible hard work that happens you know, 50, 60 years ago, 60 years ago now, to create an international law that actually respected asylum and prioritized humans and human beings over the state um, and what is being done and what has been done over the last 20 years to dismantle that within that realm and to think about what the actual consequences of those efforts have been, because we can see them. They exist. They've existed for a long time, and we just don't. So it's not just looking in, in time. It's also looking in space. Right? We're very good at cherry-picking what we like from other state uh, policies and, and ignoring, ignoring the things that maybe we don't. Heather, it's been fascinating hearing you talk about your work and listening to you speak about your research. It's emphasised how much it relates to, I think, the best kind of work that Queen's and the Mitchell Institute can do, taking incredibly important topics, looking at them systematically, long term, but with a sensitivity to geographical context as well, but also thinking about the ways in which academic research and understanding can, hopefully will, have some effect on the debates which affect policy in our real lives. So thank you very much indeed. It's been a real pleasure listening to you talk about your work. I hope people listening to the podcast will go back and look at the publications. But for today's conversation, many thanks to Dr. Heather Johnson. Thank you. Thanks.